Some of you forget that when we pray, we kneel. And I ask you to join me so that uh, it's just a habit. That when you eat, you sit down at the table. You don't stand up. And when you pray, you kneel. Now, you might wonder, uh, do you have to do it? Well, no, you don't have to come to worship either. And uh, you don't have to say hello if I say hello. Um, but I would ask you to do it. Um, it is fitting that if you're singing songs, as you did earlier this morning, where it talks about you kneeling, that sometime there's similarity between what you say and what you do. And uh, this is a time when you will be able to kneel without anybody thinking you're weird. And so that's a privilege, a wonderful privilege. Um, also, I've noticed that we don't say amen. And again, um, I exhort you, say amen at the end of a prayer. Uh, it indicates your agreement with the prayer. It's done this in biblical times. It's done this across church history. And so you have the privilege of doing that. Now, um, I'm smiling because I know that this is a little bit of a rebuke, but I do ask you, don't make me harass you to kneel and to say amen. Uh, it would be easier for me if I could just look out and see that we're all responding together. Now, of course, if you have bad knees or if there's a reason why uh, you in principle are opposed to kneeling, I encourage you not to kneel. Or if you think that it's sin to say amen, I encourage you not to sin. So don't worry. Freedom, freedom. Okay. Um, you can tell I spent a week with my family, right? Um, <clears throat> this week, we're going to study... Uh, a section in Acts, you'll notice that your bulletin did not have anything, and that's because I wasn't sure what to preach on, and I've decided to preach on Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 18. Um, so I'd ask you to turn there in your Bibles. I'm sorry that we don't have the text up on the screen. Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 18. Um, what is fitting at the time of Thanksgiving? Well, this is a very, very good text. You might wonder as we read it why. Um, I'll get to that. But I would, uh, I would say it's a very good text around Thanksgiving. The title of this sermon is, He Did Not Leave Himself Without Witness. And I'd like us to hear the reading of the Word of God Acts chapter 14, verses 8 to 18. This is the Word of God, and it is true. How long? Forever. Forever. Let's begin with verse 8. At Lystra, a man was sitting who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? 
We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know why you do that. I just can't figure it out. I'm going to ask somebody that loves me to explain this to me. Now, why is this a Thanksgiving text? Any any guesses? How would this be a Thanksgiving text? Well, there's probably a couple of ways. Number one, it's very interesting to see the natural response of uh, pagans. Now, I don't use pagans in a demeaning way. I just mean that these people had absolutely no commitment to monotheism. They had no commitment to the true God at all. They were just pagans. And it's very interesting to see that God has written on the hearts of pagans the necessity for their thankfulness to their gods. So you see immediately that when uh, they believe that the gods have come down among them, what do they do? Their immediate response is to take a bowl and to sacrifice it to their gods. And you'll see this principle all around the world. This is a universal principle. If you... Uh, if you go into the most radical, uh, actually not that radical anymore, but if you go into the environmental movement, what do you see? You see that the environmental movement has across the board uh, an, uh, an attitude of gratitude. That was a poem. Uh, <laughs> an attitude of gratitude to what? To Gaia, to, to Earth Mother, to, to nature. It's very interesting, and that's a lot of the motivation for protecting nature, isn't it? That nature gives us life and breath, and therefore we should uh, protect it. We should be thankful uh, for everything that it gives us. We should uh, be grateful. Um, if, you, if you go back then into this text and you look at their response to this man being healed immediately, you see that they respond in gratitude. And you see also immediately that the priest is up there at the very front ready to lead the cult, you know, ready to lead the worship, right? They're bringing a bowl. He'll sacrifice it, and undoubtedly he'll get some meat out of it. Now, if you look at the text uh, later and you see where Barnabas and Paul speaking, Paul doing the speaking, where they rebuke them, it's very interesting that even in the rebuke, there's a Thanksgiving theme in that they say, you know, look, you're worshiping the wrong God. These aren't gods. You should worship the true God. And why should they worship him? Well, it says you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And then it says why? It says, because he, God, made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And then if you look at verse 17, he witnessed to his existence and to his goodness in that, verse 17, he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. It's a Thanksgiving text. Um, The pagans demonstrate the natural inclination of the human heart 
to worship and to give thanks to God. Now, that doesn't mean that their worship was right. On the contrary, it was, it was, it was terribly wrong. But the initial response came from something that is good and right, that we give thanks to God. Now, let's contrast this with, uh, with other times when uh, Paul and other apostles preach in, in the uh, book of Acts. What is different this time? Well, the main difference is that we see Paul and Barnabas this time addressing Gentiles and not Jews. Now, when they address Jews, what is the thrust of their message? The thrust of the apostles' message in Acts when they address Jews is to build on the shoulders of their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers, right? How do they do that? Well, they do that by going back to the Old Testament that God inspired and gave to them as Jews, their book, and they show how the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so their whole method of evangelism with Jews is to say, you were promised one who would crush the head of the serpent. The whole Testament points forward to this Messiah. Now look, this Messiah has arrived. He suffered just as it was promised that he would, especially in Isaiah, the suffering servant. He is the continuity of the covenant. All right. This is Jesus, the Messiah. Now, could they do that with pagans? No, they couldn't do it. With pagans, they had no tradition of reading the Old Testament. They had no ability to have themselves reconnected with their roots and to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of their roots, could they? It's impossible. So then the question is, how do you speak of Jesus Christ and salvation and faith to pagans? Now, it used to be that this wasn't a very pressing question. Because no matter what you mean by it, America and the West used to be Christian cultures. And so even people who rejected going to church, rejected membership in churches, uh, were viewed as impious that way. For instance, our our illustrious President Lincoln, uh, his life he completely rejected, was very skeptical of religion. But Abraham Lincoln knew backwards and forwards scripture. Look at the second inaugural address, you see that. And also, Abraham Lincoln um, knew the gospel story. Today, though, we live in a land that not just because of immigration, but because of the failure of uh, our education, the failure of our homes, uh, for a whole variety of things, the presence of so much entertainment, which, uh, like, uh, like blowing air, Uh, into a balloon, Uh, it fills the balloon, entertainment fills us up, so there really is not time for the knowledge of God and of Scripture that there used to be. And so today we are surrounded by pagans. We are surrounded by people, many of whom not only don't make any claim to worship Jesus Christ, but uh, don't even know the purpose of Christ's coming. Uh, Many of whom uh, do look at the world as having created itself, Uh, do have a relationship with the world that they would characterize as spiritual or a relationship with art that they would characterize as spiritual, use the language that used to be used to to refer to uh, Lord's Day worship of the assembled people of God, use that language to talk about uh, opera, to talk about paintings, to talk to 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 go to rock concerts, um, to uh, talk about their discipline and the academic world, whatever it is. And religion today is something that is, is all over the place. And there are many, many who don't worship Jesus Christ and who 
have only the faintest notion of what it is to be a Christian. And so today, the way that Paul here approaches the issue of evangelizing pagans is very important for us to get. Now, there's a big debate among people who are uh, Protestants and specifically Reformed Protestants, which most of us are. And the debate is whether or not when you speak uh, to people, you should always quote Scripture and whether you should start with Scripture or not. And I want to point out to you this morning that uh, although I'm sure that they would say I'm wrong, that Paul does not start with Scripture with pagans. Now, I'm not arguing against our use of Scripture, but what does the Apostle Paul start with when he has to disengage them from worshiping their idols, Zeus and Hermes? Well, what he starts with is, he says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature. So he's trying to disengage them from thinking that they're gods. Now, in the ancient world, they had no problem with the gods coming up and down and and, and a very transparent sort of uh, relationship between God and man. You know, the gods could all of a sudden appear. They could jump up. They could could zap you with a thunderbolt. In fact, the gods of the ancient world, um, people would know them much more through uh, intense and powerful and threatening things, and specifically lightning and thunderbolts, then uh, the Jews, and specifically the Christians, knew God. It's very interesting here. These people saw this as like a thunderbolt from heaven. Here were their gods right in front of them. They began to worship them, and Paul immediately backtracks and tries to pull them away from it by saying, man, we have natures just like you. We have the same passions that you have. Literally in the Greek, it's, it speaks of, of their passions, their nature. And so what is he saying? Well, he's saying, you know, I get up in the morning and put my pants on just like you do. You know, I have the same tendencies to sin. I have the same fears, the same happinesses, the same griefs. Uh, I'm just like you. Uh, Barnabas here is just like you. It's interesting uh, that... Uh, they have to disengage themselves from being objects of worship before they can go on and speak to them about the true God. But then they do. They say, we're men of the same nature as you. This is in verse 15. And preach the gospel to you that, sh- that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. So this is, this is the initial uh, attack. Now, I don't mean attack in the sense that they got out swords, but... the They did get out the sword of the truth and they attacked them by saying these things that you worship are vain. These are vain things. These are vain things. Now, what were the things that they were worshiping? Well, they were worshiping Paul and Barnabas, but they were really worshiping what? They were really worshiping Zeus and Hermes. They were worshiping the gods of their fathers and of their mothers. Okay, the gods of the ancient world. Now, let me ask you a question. When you came to Jesus Christ and you gave up thinking that by going into uh, a church and being very observant in attending certain services at certain times, maybe lighting candles, maybe making the sign of the cross, maybe uh, going and, and putting... Whatever it is, when, when you turned from the religion you were raised in to Jesus Christ and to his grace for salvation, his grace alone, not thinking your works of your hands, 
circumcision or lighting camp, not thinking those things could save you. When you turn from that to the true God, did you turn from what you had been raised in because it was a vain thing? In other words, as you look back on the religion of your ancestors, do you see it as a vain thing? This is a problem I frequently run into in working with us as a people. Many of us, as we look back on our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents, we understand that, it's on, that, we're, that God commands that we honor our father and mother. We see our father and mother's gods as being part of honoring them. And so as we turn to the past, we have trouble knowing whether we start with our parents or with God. Do you understand this? It's very hard to separate our parents and God. And so I don't think you naturally get the punch of what the Apostle Paul says. The Apostle Paul is pointing what? He's pointing at Zeus and Hermes. And he is saying what? He is saying they are vain things. It's very interesting to me how we can study church history. We can read men like Luther and Calvin and Knox. And we can make them heroes. And we can speak of their great love for the Lord and their commitment to the word. Without realizing that they stood in front of the entire Western world at the time, and they pointed to the most powerful city, the most powerful man in the Western world, which was the Pope, and they said this, and had they said he's a vain thing, it would have been a euphemism. Because they didn't call the Pope a vain thing. It was much, much more inflammatory than that. Now, it may be that you come out of Roman Catholicism. It may be that you come out of a dead Presbyterianism that doesn't honor the Word of God. It may be that you come out of a Baptist tradition that does not honor God, but honors a sort of uh, um, very uh, sickly, sweet, um, hypocritical civic righteousness that permeates much of the Baptist culture in the South. I I know that because I was a part of it for a time. I also know it because Rob Hooper came out of it, and he used to be a pastor here, and he taught me about it constantly, emphasizing the importance. In other words, this is not about denominations. This is about your ancestors, your mother, your father, your grandparents. As you turn and look at them, and you see the Apostle Paul demanding that the pagans call their gods, the gods of their parents, vain things. Do you feel how radical that is as Paul demands that they turn from them? Are you willing to turn from the gods of your parents? Now, some of you yawn and you say, that's been going on for a long time. All right, I'm not talking to you, but I'm talking to the rest of you. I remember about uh, 20 years ago, I was in a church that uh, was a part of the mainline denominations, two churches. Uh, I had a yoked parish, which is frequent in the the country where you serve churches. You do one and then get in a car, drive to the other, and then Sunday evening we'd have a joint service. And my churches were uh, mainline Presbyterian, a part of the Presbyterian Church USA. And there were a couple of other uh, mainline churches in town. There was a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran Church, which was very exotic, and I won't get into that. 
Um, and then there was a Roman Catholic church. And then there were two evangelical churches. In other words, churches that made no bones about the fact that they worshipped the God of Scripture. They honored Scripture. They, they made every effort to be faithful to Scripture. One was a Baptist church and one was a Wesleyan church. And I can remember being filled with discontent that I had a ministry in a mainline denomination and that here these other men were able to pastor people that knew God and loved him. And so I went through a period of time where I was very much uh, um, feeling the tension of working with many people who had never been told that uh, God was a God of the word and that he had given us the word and that it was true, every word of it, and that religion was not religion. It was, it, was, it was our love for Jesus Christ and our faith in him. And uh, so I would think a lot about the difference between being in a church that honored our Lord and his word and being in a church that honored uh, Presbyterian tradition and a national denomination and things. And it occurred to me um, one day, I was trying to think about, because, of course, these churches went back generation after generation in the country. One, they had their grandpa and their great-grandpa and their great-grandmother buried in the cemetery around the church. So this was a multi-generational thing. There were many people at that church who never came except Christmas and Easter. Uh, in the town church, uh, I was shocked my first uh, January 1 there to get at the end of the year a number of envelopes, one which was specifically labeled that it was the, this person's dues for the year. Uh, and they actually called it dues. And this was somebody I didn't know. And so there were many people who had their names on the roll who never ever came to church or showed up only at Christmas and Easter. And so you can imagine that uh, having been raised in a home with a wife who had also been raised in a home that loved Jesus, that to go into that culture was a shock and caused me at least at, uh, a lot of the time to be very frustrated that I could not be the pastor of North Scott Baptist Church where true faith was living. Well, then I began to get to know these churches that were honored God. And I began to know the people in the churches. And I had time to watch our people. And what I noticed was that uh, you could preach your heart out. Now, I wasn't the preacher, but you could preach your heart out to a lot of these people that had a heritage of evangelicalism. No matter what you said, they never repented. Because they'd heard the truth so much that many of them had become inured to it. They had become callous to it. They did not have hearts which were grateful. They did not have consciences which were tender. It's interesting, this last week in reading about Jonathan Edwards, when George Whitfield, the great uh, revivalist preacher, came to Northampton where Edwards was a pastor. Edwards had been grieving over the fact that his church was not soft-hearted towards, towards the Lord. And when Whitfield came into the community, um, everyone rejoiced because all of a sudden the hearts of all the people in the church got tender towards God again. So here was a church that had already gone through a revival some years before and then had grown hard-hearted. And so I began to think about this. I had a church which made no pretense of a living faith. It was just civic religion. They sent in their dues. Then Wayne Dungan had a church that was evangelical. It was Bible-believing. And, and, and yet, 
their hearts, so many of them, weren't soft to the Word. And as time went on, what we saw was that as, as I and others, specifically Mary Lee's father, came and preached, uh, the, 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 the truth of Scripture to the people in the mainline church, that many of them repented. And the interesting thing was that when the mainline people repented, central to their repentance was a new gospel. The gospel of grace through Jesus Christ, not through petty moralism, which is what mainline churches give you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ and tied up with Jesus Christ was always the word of God and the fact that every word in it was true. And so, whereas the evangelicals were hardened against Scripture, yes, they could tell you that, about the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture, that they believed in inerrancy, all this stuff, you know, the substitutionary atonement. But their hearts were cold. Their hearts were hard. The, the mainliners, when the gospel was presented to them and, and, and the honor of Scripture, they repented. And then you know what happened? Every single part of their lives became negotiable. You understand this? Every part of their hearts became negotiable. For instance, Kim Corbin came over to our house one morning, sat down at the table in, in our kitchen, and she said, I've been reading, and, and I'm wondering, you know, it says don't let your adornment be, you know, fancy stuff and jewelry. And do you think I should stop wearing jewelry? And that's a question you'd never, ever, ever hear from an evangelical. Because evangelicals have been assured that Scripture never means what it appears to mean. It always means something else. And those of us that are sophisticated and have heard... You know, people from Wheaton lecture, you know, will understand that you're never supposed to take Scripture literally. You know, it's, it's always a, a higher or a broader or a deeper meaning. It's, it's never that meaning. Now, I'm being a little bit facetious and a little bit sarcastic. And, and maybe I'm not completely right about that, but you, you know what I'm saying. Those of us who handle holy things all the time become callous to their holiness. And we begin to think that Scripture is something that we can manipulate. And what is the goal of our manipulation? Well, here's where I get back into the text. Carol's praying that I'll return. All right. <laughs> Carol says that I go off on these tangents. Sometimes she just prays that the Lord will bring me back. So, all right, I'm coming back. What's my point? Well, my point is, what's the goal of evangelicals who have lost the fear of God, who have lost respect for the Word, who have lost tender hearts. The goal of them is to honor their parents. The whole goal is to honor your father and your mother, to honor the, the professors that they had at your college, to keep the tradition going. That's the point. And so it doesn't matter what's true in your heart. What matters is that you have the same thanksgiving, you know, the same stuffing, the, the same turkey, the same cranberry sauce that your mother had. Right? Now, why am I asking you to, to listen to me on this? Because I want you to enter into what the Apostle Paul is saying to these pagans. He is saying, in the past, God overlooked such foolishness, but now he demands that all people everywhere repent. Now, is that what the text says? No. But does the text say that? Yes. Where else did Paul say the same thing? He said it in Athens, to the Areopagus. The same exact thing. In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. Here he calls them vain things. In Athens, he says ignorance. 
And this is what the message is that we should take to this community. In the past, God has been willing to overlook this because you were ignorant. Now think of the generation after generation of people there in that city who had served the gods of the ancient world. And what Paul's telling them is, up until now, you were not responsible, but you've now heard the truth. And from this point on, you will be judged by the truth you've heard. Scripture says, to whom much is given, much will be required. And that's why it's a very dangerous thing to come to church. Those who neglect coming to church are, in a certain sense, very wise. Because church always condemns or builds up. It never leaves you neutral when you leave here. You either move towards obedience, remembering what you saw in the mirror and acting on it, or you move towards greater unbelief. All right? And here the Apostle Paul comes with Barnabas. And what does he do? Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword of Jesus Christ cuts into this community, and it separates those who will continue to serve the vain things because of respect and love and affection for their mother and their father and their grandmother and their grandfather and this priest whom they supported. Or they would turn and they would begin to worship the true God. They would turn away from the vain things and they would begin to worship the true God. Now, what kind of a response did the gospel bring to that community? Well, look at the text. It says, actually, it's interesting. I have compressed it in my mind. Look in your Bibles, please, um, to Acts chapter 14. And you'll see that they restrained the crowds only with difficulty from offering sacrifice to them. But if you go down later in the text, you'll see that there were many disciples made in verse 21. I stopped reading in verse 18 and should have kept reading. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra. Actually, that's Derby. But you'll see down when they returned to Lystra, that they appointed elders, that there were many people that did believe in the church in Lystra. So there were those that God worked in their hearts through the Holy Spirit who did believe in Jesus Christ, who were willing to turn away from the vain things to the true God. Now, when we look at the Apostle Paul's message, he demands that they turn away from the God of their ancestors, and that they turn to the true God, and then he begins to describe the true God. Now, remember earlier that I said that the God in the ancient world was a God who was known principally through his power. And this makes sense in the ancient world, doesn't it? That the Roman phalanxes, that all the power of Rome and its empire, that their gods would be gods who were overpowering, viewed from the perspective of human beings and from this earth. And, uh, you know, you think of Zeus, you think of the god of thunder. You think of how powerful thunder is. But that's not what the Apostle Paul focuses on in leading them to the knowledge of the true God, is it? Look at verse 15, and you'll see where the men of the same nature as you, we preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, and then they describe who the living God is. Who is he? The living God made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Again, this is almost an exact statement of what is said in Athens. God made everything. 
That's where you start with pagans. This is why pagans who are religious pagans, in other words, uh, not just irreligious, but this is why they hate the concept of intelligent design. Uh, it, it gets at the very root, for instance, of environmentalism, of evolutionism. We should begin to call evolution evolutionism because it is religion. It's a religion that says that uh, the world uh, does... Uh, now, these are the more doctrinaire people, but evolutionism is, is a doctrine that does not have room for God. And this is the principal excellence of uh, Philip Johnson. Philip Johnson is content to simply show that the conclusions that evolutionists come to are not supported by the facts that they deal with. All right. How do you argue that there is no creator from evolution, from any evolutionary support that you can find in nature? How do you argue it? The opposite is what you really have to argue. Because the more you study it, the more you're driven back to the beginning. And the more you're driven back to the beginning, the more you see that there's absolutely nothing that is what? The first cause. And so the Apostle Paul is telling them that God is the first cause because he made everything. You know, we should think more uh, carefully about the nature of Scripture's statement that says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We often deal with evolutionists as if they're wise. They're not. They're fools. How could I say that? They have PhDs. They're fools. Well, you know, I'm just being uh, a rascal and saying that. No, I'm not. I'm thinking that if Scripture says something, there must be some application of it to our lives if we're dealing with very loud people who are screaming in the press and on television. I mean, it's everywhere right now. This intelligent design issue is very clear. They hate it. All right. And if Scripture says that those who say in their heart there is no God are fools, this has, should have some application to us. What is a fool? What does Scripture tell us about fools? Does Scripture tell us that we should answer a fool according to his folly? Now, it says the opposite, doesn't it? It says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And so you, you enter into the university and you try to allow the university because it has PhDs and robes and, and, and uh, uh, you know, that thing some of you are... Not tassels, now. Hood, yes, the hood. Yeah, the men in the hood. Um, <laughs> geez, a little bit different construction. <laughs> um, if we look at that, we can be overwhelmed by it and think that Scripture doesn't apply to how we witness to them and approach them as if they're wise and his reason will convince them, but it won't. So Paul says vain things, and then he moves on. And how, how does he seek to convince these people? Uh, the way he seeks to convince them is by showing them God's power through thunder and through lightning and through earthquakes, right? How does Paul speak to them? How does Paul lead them to the true God? What does he speak to them of? Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 17. He says, this God did not leave himself without witness. He hasn't been silent. He hasn't uh, left you ignorant. But rather, he witnessed to himself by what? By doing good and by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons and satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
Now, let me ask you a question. When you came to Jesus, did you come because of his love or because of his wrath? And you say, that's a bad question. When I was a young, stupid father, uh, one time I looked at our little three-year-old daughter, Heather, who's now a mother herself, and I said to Heather, Heather, who do you love more, mommy or daddy? And she looked from me to my wife, Mary Lee, and back to me, and she said, that's a bad question. (laughs) But I ask you, when you came to Jesus, did you come because of his mercy and because of his gentleness, or did you come because of his threats? And you say that's a bad question. Yes, I know. In some senses it is. But remember, the Apostle Paul could have built on the theme of Zeus here. But he didn't. The Apostle Paul builds on what theme with pagans? And remember, these are idolaters. He could have hammered them with their idolatry, couldn't he? Told them that homosexuality was wrong. Told them that idolatry was wicked. And he does do that. But what is it that he holds out? If he, if he has a plate in his hand filled with food, what does he hold out to them? He holds out to them what? He holds out to them the goodness of God, and specifically the goodness through rain. And, you know, if you look at Scripture again and again and again, the theme of God being the God of rain is a sweet theme that permeates Scripture and our lives. If you talk to any farmer... That farmer has a very tender relationship with rain, except when it floods like Katrina, right? Okay? Rain is a sweetness from God. It's a river that comes from his heart of goodness and kindness and gentleness. Isn't that interesting? He speaks of the rain. And what else does he speak of? He speaks of fruitful seasons. And he speaks of their hearts being satisfied with food and with gladness. Now, Um, You know, we have that, I forget what the Thanksgiving basket is called. What's that called? The cornucopia. Okay. And out of it comes the fruit, and we look at the table filled with food. But what about the issue of the gladness around your table this Thanksgiving? I cannot overemphasize the evangelistic nature of the Christian home. And again, I'll say to you, if your home is not filled with gladness, it's not a Christian home. All right? A Christian home is a home of joy. Now, I know we fight. We're petty. We have sin in our homes. But they are homes of joy. Your home should be a place of joy. And he says the gladness that these pagans have. How could pagans demand of God a gladness? Doesn't that seem strange? They're idolaters. They're ready to kill a bull bull to these two men, thinking that, you know, Zeus has come down from heaven, right? And God has given them the rains. And God has given their hearts gladness. And he's given them the food on their table. And brothers and sisters, we have to emphasize this with the pagans that are around us today. Okay? We have to emphasize to them that God is a God of loving kindness. That God does not treat us as our sins deserve. But that as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him, for he knows our frame that we are made of dust. 
Okay? Now, if you answer honestly, I believe that you will know, as you look back on your life, if you love Jesus, if you know him, that you will look back in your life and you will see that it was the loving kindness of God that drew you. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that it's the loving kindness of God that withholds the second coming and judgment because he wants to draw more women and men into his kingdom and to lead them to repentance. In fact, the Bible says, and we have problems with this as Reformed people, and that's why we should speak it all the louder and the more frequently. The Bible says that God is not willing that what? Any should perish. Now, is this a God for you to love? Hmm? Hmm? This is a God that's better than your mother. Even our mothers sometimes will think evil of us when they shouldn't. <laughs> but God has absolutely impeccable vision. He knows precisely when we were making the poorest and yet still efforts to honor him. God also knows when we're making very sophisticated efforts to hide the sin in our hearts. And this God says that if we ask him for wisdom, he'll provide it bountifully. And then the part of it I love without what? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of the Lord who provides bountifully. But then it says what? It says that he will provide it to us without what? Without finding fault. I always have to think of that when I ask him for wisdom because, you know, I go cringing thinking, oh my, if he even looks at me, he'll never answer. But the Bible says without finding fault. And so the Apostle Paul says, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even saying these things with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. Now, just a couple more applications will be done. First of all, I want you to recognize that, um, that one of the dangers of being in a Bible-believing church is that we think that what our hands do and, and, and anything physical doesn't matter. Uh, that what really matters is, is your heart. And so we're very fond of quoting, you know, that the day will come when they will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we emphasize the spirit. And what we mean by that is, you know, our God is not a God of candles. He's not a God of uh, masses. He's not a God of images of Mary. He's not a God of the Lutheran or the Orthodox icons. You know, our God is a God of spirit, you know. And so consequently, when the offering plate comes, we all say to each other, well, you know, my God knows that I really love him and, and I'm not going to buy my way into the kingdom and it passes empty. And so what really goes on is we use the fact that we have repented of the legalism of other traditions to salve our own consciences in worshiping ourselves. No, we don't worship the Pope. We simply worship ourselves. And so... I want you to look at the pagans and to see that they had the right idea when they saw the goodness of God with this man. They did what? They offered sacrifices to this God. The error was not them offering the sacrifices. The error was that the sacrifices were to idols, to vain things. 
And so I want you to realize that God does uh, care and God does receive your offerings that are physical. If you have someone at your table today because you love God, this is a pleasing sacrifice to him. Every time we have the Lord's Supper almost, we make reference to, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies, not your hearts, not your spirits. Now, I'm not trying to make a, you know, a competition between the two, and yet you, you often do make it. And so let me point out, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is a reasonable act of worship. All right? And so it matters what you do with your bodies and your tables and your cars. Do you loan your car out because you love Jesus? Do you loan your car out? Do you do this? Is your home loaned out? Is your table, is your food, is your money, is your your summer home if you have one? Where are the priorities in your life? Don't say you love God and then hoard. You can either love God or mammon, but you can't love them both. You'll either hate one or hate the other. This is what Scripture says. All right, that's, that's the first thing. These pagans were honorable. They just had the wrong goal. The second thing is this. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus came, Jesus didn't do one healing in town, did he? Jesus did healing after healing after healing after healing after resurrection after... It just went on and on and on. And did the Jews believe? Jesus said that it would go better for Sodom and Gomorrah because these towns had had every demonstration of his divinity, but they refused to believe. You remember that? That's Satan. And so what we need to think of is the fact that God is pleased to do flip-flops. We know he does it in heaven because it says in heaven, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And what we're seeing around the world today is a great cosmic flip-flop of God's providence and sovereign predestination of men and women. And what we're seeing is the casting off of the Western world and God's mercy to the Southern Hemisphere. Do you understand this? The Western world has become satiated with the gospel and all things having to do with God. And it believes that it can have its lusts of its flesh and its lust of its eye and its pride of life and God at the same time. And the southern hemisphere has little to nothing. And they're turning to God. Now, I'm, I'm drawing a big picture and I'm not going to be answerable for every nation and every people. But wouldn't it be fitting if China would be the greatest source of Christian missionaries that the world has ever seen and that they would come out of persecution. Let's not despise pagans. Pagans often repent and believe. They did in Lystra. They are in Africa and Asia today. And let's not forget that the Son of Man had no place to rest his head and that he was crucified by Jewish religious leaders. And so I ask you today to think of the loving kindness of God, to think of his goodness to this man who was a paraplegic, to think of his goodness to you, the rains, the food on your table, and the gladness in your home and in your marriage, your relationships, and to have a tender conscience before him. 
to turn away from the vain things of your parents and don't cling on to them. Turn away from them and give yourself to God. Let him be your father. Let us pray.